The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, and relax. <laughs> it's it's Monday, April 4th. 5.04 p.m. Eastern Time, we're coming to you live, double the Scott, double the philosophy, double the in lieu of fun. It's like some type of gum commercial from the 1990s. <laughs> like, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, sorry, I just explained the joke. But uh, we're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have uh, Scott Hershevitz professor of law at Michigan Law School, uh, which we we only all know it here on the show as Paula's Law School. So that's (laughs) (laughs) um, but uh, talking about Taylor Swift and forgiveness and his op-ed from 2019, um, which is freshly relevant in light of everything that's been going on. So welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks. It's so great to have Uh, you. You know, I have like when you get Scott and I together, you might have to stop saying we're not allowed to have fun. Yeah. I think you know Scott. Scott and I used Many to be on the faculty tried. together, <laughs> and it was fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I was. I I I just can't. I I'm just maybe just. I I mean, this is not embarrassing to you. It's embarrassing that you were made to do it. But I just want you to know that Scott, when Scott was a law student at Yale and I was a faculty, I was visiting, somebody made Scott go and lobby the faculty to hire me, which is like, and Scott was forced to do to like go into- They the- were not oh, pleased really? to see, they were not pleased to see, I don't. I, I was either a 1L or a 2, I think it was a 2L. And they were not pleased to see a student <laughs> showing up like serially in their offices saying, hey, you might not know this, but Scott Shapiro is really great. <laughs> so, so, I, so I would say. How do you that, think, how do you think that like that weighed in the, in your favor, Scott? <laughs> like, well, he didn't get hired did, that year. Yeah, yeah. It I did know. not, it did, it did not, it was a definite, it was like everything was bad about it. Like to ask Scott to do it. Did you know so, that it yeah. was happening? Yes, but like I couldn't, I, I couldn't stop it. Anyway, the point is that no matter what I ever will do vis-a-vis Scott, I don't think I'll ever be able to really fully repay that amount of um, cringe that like in her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, I'm like slightly uncomfortable imagining this for you. Oh, it's just, it was just so terrible but scott being the men i had to be in the room over and over again (laughs) so so anyway i can't even i can't imagine if a 2l came to us and was like you should hire this person or like i just would be yes that would be yeah it was no uh yeah but no it's pretty great just also just remember that scott also had had he already had a d fill from oxford in philosophy so it wasn't like it just 
it wasn't like nobody who was saying it. It was like he had, a, you know, like he was some, he was an expert, but of course it just wasn't. Anyway, never, never, nevertheless, I just want to say that I am always in your debt for that, no matter what. <laughs> That's like one step up from brisket bonanza. You could have yeah. easily told that story and no one would have believed you. Uh, yeah. We'll tell you the brisket bonanza story later, Scott. Yeah. If you haven't yeah. heard it. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty great. Anyways, um, I put in the chat, I'm going to put it again. Um, Scott Hershevitz had um, in 2019, this amazing op-ed about Taylor Swift um, and a philosopher of forgiveness, which is a great title too, by the way. They've like, they're kind of, um, the New York Times op-ed lately loves to do this, like, I am a philosopher and so is Taylor Swift. Or like, <laughs> I am, like, I am like, I am a war criminal and so is like, Trump, like, or like whatever it is that they have, like someone writing something and they take this first person narrative and then they're like, that will be the qualifying thing and like you know but i actually think that you this was very clever and self-erasing but i am i i, I do kind of i i want to hear you state your claim to yeah. taylor swift as philosopher yeah so it all traces back to a 60 minutes interview that she gave in 2019 where she was still 10 years later reflecting on the the incident with Kanye from the Grammys where he had come up on I'm stage. A, I'm going to let you finish. Yeah. But Kanye was... Oh, it was the American Music Awards. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Was Sorry. Sorry. No. Sorry. yeah. <laughs> it was the American Music In any event, from an award show. <laughs> and he had come up on stage. She, was, she had just won the award for um, Best Female Music Video. And it was the best new artist on, award. Wasn't it? I'm not sure that's oh, right. No, was it? Oh. It was the, it was oh, was it? He came up on stage oh, to say right. that her video was okay, but Beyonce's single A's video was like the greatest video of all time. And the yeah. whole thing was, was in, in a way turned out to be pointless because she won the best video period, like the non like gendered version of the award later in the, in the evening. But, um, but like he busted up her big moment on stage and and you know I, I was looking back actually earlier today at a timeline of timeline of the feud between them and I did not have time to read it because it was like you know 72 entries long of like different what, things like that trace yeah well you know like BuzzFeed or something like trace back to that evening and uh, but then in this in the 60 minutes review in 2019 she says People are always saying that you have to forgive, um, that you have to forgive in order to move on. And she says, that's not true. Sometimes you can just move on, right? And then she describes the circumstances in which she thinks you ought to forgive someone. She says, if, you know, somebody's been like, I can't remember exactly how she put it. Somebody's been like, like a force for good in your life, um, or they made amends, then you forgive them. But she says, if your relationship's toxic and that's all it's ever been, um, what are you going to do? She says, you just become indifferent and you move on. And, and I think like that's super insightful and super insightful in, in lots of different ways, right? So um, first, I think like she's got a, a good sense of, um, or let's just think about like back up for a second, think about what forgiveness is. Right. So the traditional philosophical story, which goes back hundreds of years to this guy named Bishop Butler, is that 
the forgiveness is the release of resentment, right? So somebody's done something bad to you and because they've done something bad, you resent them. And we can talk a little bit more mm. about why that is, like why resentment might be a warranted reaction when somebody Could we wrongs define you. resentment? Is there a definition yeah. that's understood? Sorry, the not definition to too much resentment. into the weeds, but... Yeah, so um, I think of of resentment as the kind of um, it's 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 hard. It's hard. It's like it's the judgment that you've been wronged, but the kind of like, but it's not just sort of a sort of like a a third person might judge that you've been wronged, right? But it's the kind of um, uh, like protest of that wrongdoing. So actually, let's just let's just back up. But and it's think internal about... too. It's not like resentment is so like one like one would say that like someone I, when I was researching guilt and shame, like guilt is internal and shame is external. Like you shame others. It's your ex, it's like the manifestation of not your guilt, but like your like you're trying to shame like how you feel does that make sense? Like when you, when you, like that, if you're actually using it correctly, shame is about what you do to other people. And like guilt is like what you internalize with yourself or like shame yourself. Does that make sense? So I think I'm, you can resent privately. You can also express your resentment, but let's, so let's actually think yeah. about why you would resent. Cause I see people in the chat saying yeah. it's a waste of time. And I don't think it's at all a waste of time. So my thinking on this is really shaped by a philosopher named Joffrey Murphy. And Murphy says, when somebody wrongs you, think about like intentional wrongdoing, um, their act usually communicates some sort of message about you. And it's typically a demeaning message, right? So the examples he gave where it might say, I'm, I'm here up high and you're, you're there down low, or maybe I can use you for my purposes, or maybe the way I treat you doesn't matter, right? And so, and so Murphy says, typically, the things we think of as serious wrongs convey that sort of message. Hmm. And there's this tradition going back to, to Bishop Butler that sees resentment as a matter of self-respect, right? It's a way hmm. of privately and perhaps publicly protesting that message of thinking you have this wrong. You're not better than me. You can't treat me this way. Um, I matter, right? Even though you don't think so. So the other philosopher that's really shaped how I think about this is Pamela Hieronymi, who teaches at UCLA. And Pamela is, is most famous now. She was a and consultant for the Good Place. And you mentioned in the, the Good Place. Yeah. Yeah. She was a consultant for the Good Place. And actually, even as a cameo appearance in the last episode, she's sitting on the couch uh, in the final, one of the final scenes. So she says that, you know, like the, the wrongdoing just hanging out there on its own poses a kind of threat to you right? That maybe, right, this is an okay way to treat you. And the threat comes in like two varieties. Maybe other people are going to conclude that this is an okay way to treat you. And then really, very often, people themselves conclude that what happened to me was okay. I'm just the kind of person that has to take that kind of treatment, say, from Kanye. And so this is why there's this long tradition of philosophers thinking resentment serves a kind of purpose, which is to say it, it um, resists that message, it protests that message. And when you express it, it's a way of trying to um, counter the threat, right? To say, hey, no, wait a minute, you can't treat me that way. So it's a society. So it is both like an internal and an external view. And the external value of resentment is to assure others uh, to like, 
to like protect or defensively protect or maybe offensively protect your like your value in society and to others. And like the internal is to like kind of protect your own idea of self-worth to yourself kind of. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Okay. So... So that's a picture. Now, that's not to say, I mean, like, is the conversation in the chat about resentment being bad. Resentment can be bad for people, right? It can consume your life and, uh, you know, take over. You can have intrusive thoughts. You just can't let go of what happened between you and Kanye. And it gets in the way of making music or living your life. And that's bad for people, right? And so there's this, there's this story that we tell ourselves, like, in the, in, like our society now where we say, oh, look, resentment's bad. It kind of eats you from the inside. It's it's counterproductive and you need to find a way to let it go or shake it off. And then people want to say, and that's forgiveness, right? So forgive and forget and move on, right? And they think like, I'm, I should practice being forgiving in this way. It's good for me right, to be forgiving in this way. And that's where Taylor Swift, philosopher of forgiveness enters. She's disagreeing with that picture of forgiveness. She's saying, I don't have to forgive in order to move on, right? I can just become indifferent. I can stop caring about it. I can shake it off and then move on without forgiving you, right? And the argument for that, I think, depends on a more nuanced picture of what forgiveness is. It's not just letting go of your resentment, right? It's letting go of your resentment for a certain kind of reason. It's letting go of your resentment because you see that I can repair my relationship with this person. I can return to, to a kind of normal state of affairs and positive interaction with them, right? So like, what would make that true? Well, maybe if the person said, hey, I'm sorry, I feel, I feel really bad about what happened then, um, and you believe them, you think it's sincere, right? That person is taking away some of the threat, right? That they might treat you this way again. If, if, if it's public that they've apologized, then other people know that they no longer or never did hold the view that it was okay to treat you this way, right? So if that person disassociates themselves from the demeaning message and what they did, then you can restore normal, relations with them. That's the kind of case where forgiveness seems warranted, right? But if you, if you, if you let go of your resentment just because you think, well, that guy's still an asshole, or as President Obama called Kanye in these circumstances, that guy's a jackass, right? <laughs> and he's still a jackass. And that's all he's ever going to be is a jackass, right? Forgiveness seems out of place. But what, but like, okay, sorry. I'm like, I've been dominating, but so Scott, you go ahead. No, 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 I, I, believe me, I I have had my chances to speak to Scott in the past. So Um, recently, yeah, but, okay. I mean, I have have things to say too, but um, uh, don't you, can I just say one thing? Don't you think in the case with the he's a jackass, the idea is that it's, it's more like the fact that somebody like there's that, um, I don't want to say master-slave dialectic, but there's a way in which when you resent somebody, you are elevating them um, because you see them as they, their message to you or their, their, that, that 
view about you, some sense matters to you. Um, and what you, you could also just think literally nothing that person thinks matters. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah. So this, this article that, that Pamela Hieronymi wrote is, um, it's called articulating an uncompromising forgiveness. And here's what she means by uncompromising. She says, in order to have genuine forgiveness, you've got to hold on to three judgments. One is you wronged me. The second is you matter. And the third is I matter, right? If I don't think you wronged me, then right. I'm excusing you or justifying what you did. And if I don't think you matter, right, then I'm dismissing you, right? Not forgiving you. And if I don't think I matter, then I'm kind of um, dismissing myself or condoning mm. your treatment of me. I like right? that. That's a very, that is a very clean, like that's a very clean, that's yeah. versus very well. Yeah. And so, you know, so Scott's saying, like, I am elevating, I'm treating you like a person that matters. And actually, uh, my colleague, Scott's former colleague, Bill Miller, who's, you know, writes about revenge cultures and, uh, and honor societies, um, talks about how, um, you know, part of the way those societies worked is, like, not everybody was capable of being wronged by everyone else. If you were a person of very high status, and you were mistreated by a person of low status, it would be a serious mistake to take revenge, to respond to them, right? to treat them like they were a person that mattered in the world, right? You want to be in the business of, like to maintain your status, your honor. You wanna be in the business of dismissing them, of taking the view that you can't hurt me. As Miller says, like the view that you can't hurt me, it's kind of a power move, right? It's a way of saying, hey, yeah. Yeah. I, I just say, like, that's precisely what the, why people uh, uh, objected so much to even the claim, the phrase, the war on terror, because the idea was is that you can go to war with non with terrorists. They're, they don't matter in the way in which a state matters. And so therefore you are elevating them dramatically. Oh, interesting. By, you know, so that, so that was the idea is the, the idea is that it's just a, it's a, it's not only an oxymoron, the war on terror, but it's also serving the interests of sure. the other side um, to, to say that it's a war as opposed to, you know, a criminal, uh, you know, special military operation. And worse than that, you, once you define it that way, you can't win. Right. Yeah. That's exactly well. That's cert that's certainly right because you th there's no accepting of. I mean, th there's no way that the uh, there's no other side that can grant you what it is that people like you need. That is, you you need it from a collective entity known as a state. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, but, but it's the same I've thing. I've never heard that before, Scott. By the way, that is fascinating. I never. Yeah. I like, and so like this isn't my area, but I'd never heard that. But like. Mm -hmm. I have this, there was this guy when I was in high school who did something pretty terrible to me. We don't need to get like, whatever. Uh, we didn't go in, we were not after high school. We were just like not in the same circle. We never had to like, even in high school, never had to like fit, like continue interacting. I just kind of cut him off and that was it. And he followed me 
throughout my life, not like in a stalking type of way. I want to be clear in a way that was like every couple of years or every year. So every time there was a new social media platform or every time there was a new chance to like, he would come and tell me and apologize for what he had done and tell me that he had been forgiven by like the people of his faith and like for what he had done because his what he had done was against like all these other things. But then like he would apologize and ask my forgiveness over and over. And I just was like, I just don't want to talk to you anymore. Like, I just like, you're just not like, it's not like, I don't forgive you. I also don't consider you. Like, I just don't consider Can you. Can I ask you? Like, <laughs> I, so, I have my own version of this story and I'm sort of curious hey, to like. Dwayne. Hey, Sorry. Hey there. Dwayne and Scott. Hey, what's going on? Have you guys met before? We've I've never not. met, but I'm a big fan. Oh, thanks. I, I forgive you for lying to everybody publicly. <laughs> I I have not been on the wait, wait wait this is our second time that we've been on together, Dwayne right yeah I yeah so. okay yeah fan okay fantastic let's uh I'm sorry let's welcome yeah welcome we're just we're talking about forgiveness and Taylor Swift um but I just said that there is like this entire like this like person that like I had just never and like I have to be honest what I was gonna follow up this really quickly was like. I don't know that I've ever felt that kind of power again, where I don't, I know that I'm never going to have to interact with this person ever again in like my life. And so I feel like I can completely, like, I just don't really even need to engage, but I really wonder, like, I don't feel that way with almost anyone else before or since. Like I, like I would rather have things be easy and kind of nice and like smooth things down rather than have that level of conflict. And I, I'm, interested in what you think about that. So I wanted to ask you a question about the story because I had my own version of it. I think it um, probably didn't involve a significant wrongdoing is what you're suggesting. But I there was this guy in my elementary school who at the time I thought of as my enemy was kind of like a bully for for years and years. And um, and then, you know, we went, I think we were in the same school for middle school. We went to different high schools. I didn't hear from him for decades and had no idea what he was up to in life until Facebook came along. And then one day I get this message on Facebook that uh, he'd like to apologize for, you know, the way he treated me when we were in elementary school and he went on like in, by trying to account for his behavior. And, um, and I was so befuddled by the note. I really didn't know how to interact with him at this point. And I sent him a note and said, yeah, this is like a really lovely note that you sent. And I, I really appreciate it. But then I want to say like, it's, it's clear to me that you're a different person from the person I knew mm -hmm. when I was younger. And, and I don't feel like you need to be apologizing for what that kid did. And I also don't feel like I, and I was very artful, about the, intentional about the way that I said this. I also don't feel like I need an apology, right? Like I'm not the kid that you treated <laughs> that way. That's kind of how I felt about this. I was like, you know, like mm. this is, we were just like two kids and like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Like, let's just but like. But part of, but like for, like when I wrote that sentence, it felt like kind of a double-edged sword because what I wanted to say was like, look, I'm fine in the world. I don't really need this apology that you're offering. But also there was a person who did and he's not around anymore. And you can't speak to, like you, you could have made a difference in his life. Dwayne, it looks like you're saying something. We can't hear you. 
Yeah, no, because that's I, I think that's both profound and like deeply troubling, right? Because the entire sort of system of parole in this country is is premised on the notion that the person who has served five, 10, 15 years in prison still needs to show remorse and to beg for forgiveness for this thing that somebody who is radically different from who they are. And, and mm. this happens, I mean, like, I'm going to give you one specific case. It was a case of a kid in, in, in Florida. He had committed a home invasion with a co-defendant. And during the home invasion, his co-defendant attempted to rape the woman. And he prevented it from happening. He was 14. He got sentenced to life in prison, right? So they, some, the Supreme Court said that you can't get life in prison for a non-homicide event. He goes up back before the court to get resentenced. The prosecutor asks that he gets 99 years or 80 years or something um, and says that I figured, how did you figure this out? I calculated his life expectancy and he'll be able to be free for three and a half days. Like some ridiculous shit like that, right? The judge said, I will not, I see that you rehabilitated yourself. He did like 20 years or 15 years, hadn't had any charges, right? Um, the victim came and testified on his behalf, right? Um, testified that he had prevented her from getting raped. That you know that she looked at what he's done with his life since then, and 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 he had did this like fifteen years charge free, and the judge said I will not give you credit for what the state of Florida has done for you, and so it's a double edged sword because it's both deeply profound wow. in the sense that he had proven himself to be a different person, right. um, and on one hand the person that he harmed was saying like I, I am not the person that you harmed anymore, but on the other hand. If 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 you're no longer the person that I harm, then it's impossible for me to get mercy for this thing that I've done, because the punishment is is basically like, you know, carved in stone. Right. It's like it's just your like it's your what is like it's your body like it's like literally punishing your body and not like the. It, anyways, this reminds me. Actually, no, no, I, I right. Yeah. It is punishing. I get it. It's punishing your body because. In some sense, the kind of sense of self is it doesn't so yeah has changed, right? I mean, this is very much like Derek Parker. Josh Noob's work and, on essentialism, right? But there's that right. There's a, there's yeah. an enormous, but but what Dwayne is pointing out is like right that double-edged sword is the fact that like on the one hand you can say I'm not the same person, on the other hand, it's that person that has to pay for right. and so and you're you're unfortunately connected to that person bottle corporally yeah yeah it's i mean how do you yeah uh, i think I, these I, I, both like well, yeah scott you can solve this because we're going to solve I, sentence in america right now <laughs> <laughs> we're going to do it right now yeah, yeah. no i'm definitely not going to solve it i'm just going to say these questions about personal identity across across time seem to be really central to the kinds of issues that the criminal justice system struggles with, right? Um, so, um, and, and, and I wanna say like, uh, I, I, the way I think about personal identities, you can be the same person in one sense and a different person in another sense. And the real struggle is to figure out which senses are important for the purposes of what we're up to, right? Um, and so uh, what we need to do is figure out well, we'd like to see that the person is changed. What kinds of changes are we looking for? Um, you know, if it's complete, you know, uh, you know, if, if there was no psychological continuity, right? We've got a person with advanced dementia, then then 
probably in our society, we can't even get agreement on that, but we at least ought to be able to, to think there, there's no purpose served left by, uh, by punishing, but most cases are less extreme. There's some continuities and some breaks. And I think we haven't um, thought hard enough and been clear enough in our legal practices about, um, about just what sort of continuities and breaks make the difference for us. Such an interesting, like, sorry, Scott, or Dwayne, go ahead. I've like, I feel like I've dominated. I've talked too much. I'm like very excited. I've been excited about this piece since I read it in 2019. And so now I get to like, kind of like frame all these questions to you. So this is very fun. But Dwayne's point now makes me think of all these other things. So. No, I mean, I, I like that. I, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I wish that it, the, the system had a more robust accounting for what it means to no longer be the same person that was victimized. Because one of the things that happens is they call it, they call you to account for being the same person. So when they call a victim and they ask what has happened to you, one, the state takes no, no, um, they, they, they have no stake in you involving into a different person, whether it's therapy, um, whether it's like sort of financial support that you need, because, you know, if somebody robs you and they take $10,000, um, you're not going to get it back from them. And the state is also not going to give it back to you. And who knows how you set it up or more reasonable um, 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 situation. I steal your car. And your insurance company says, oh, your car was stolen. Um, and you had a you had a Nissan Maximum that had 100,000 miles on it. And you knew it was good for another 100,000 miles. Insurance company says, your car has been stolen. It's only worth $3,500. We're going to give you all of that tomorrow. You should be excited. And you're like, uh, I'm not excited. My credit score yeah. shit. The only thing I had was that car, right? It's <laughs> not going to allow you to get to work, right? And so the question becomes, yeah. how to Brit? That's why you remain the same person as suffering, because the collateral consequences of your suffering keep extending out to when you can get past it, if you can get past it. And so it's like really interesting to think about how we could ask this question about when you become somebody else and how you become somebody else right. and who is actually being punished. And I just actually don't think that third, like third parties are ever dissuaded from committing crimes because of punishments people get. It's, it's just an irrational thing to believe, um, given that the only crimes we really hear about are the most heinous ones ever. Like you don't find out that, you know, you don't find out that like Jonathan got 60 days for DUI, right? Unless you watch, unless you watch the nightly news. And if you're likely to get a DUI, Jonathan going to prison is not going to dissuade you from, from like, taking that fifth drink at the bar it's like you on your fourth drink you like you know I heard <laughs> Jonathan. this is exactly <laughs> for me to stop right <laughs> yeah i mean you you've hit another one of my sort of philosophical interests as i write about tort law and writing wrongs and you know uh, have written many papers about the inadequacy of the standard phrase that we're going to make the plaintiff whole or put the put them in the position you know nobody in. in life has ever said that no, I've no. Many papers about the standard phrase. I love academics. Like we know how to make the world matter in the most minute ways. I'm looking up all of these papers tonight. Go ahead. Tell us what the standard phrase is. Oh well, so like you're gonna you're gonna make someone whole or put them in the position they were in had the wrongdoing never happened. And um, you know, I had this sort of uh, showdown with the people I was criticizing. I showed up uh, years ago at um at tel aviv in tel aviv to give a paper and uh you know i had all these quotes from from tort scholars who were 
um, proponents of this view of what tort damages do, that they they make it as if the wrong had never happened, as something Arthur Ripstein says. They put people in the position they would have been in absent the wrongdoing, as something Ernie Weinrib says. And, and I walk I walk into the building, and there's Ernie, who does not teach in Tel Aviv, says, hey, Scott, I, I happen to be in town. I'm coming to your paper today. And then they introduce me to somebody else who was in the paper as a critic. And I thought, ah, what am I going to do? I have this presentation written out. And I thought, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to say the things I've been saying about these guys in the room with them there. And, uh, and I actually asked him, I said, you know, like, I just want you to imagine somebody who's, who suffered a serious wrong, say you represent a plaintiff who uh, was sexually assaulted. And then, you know, there's a trial and she wins and she gets a big jury verdict. And I want you to turn to her there at the, <laughs> there at the table. And I want you to say, you know what happened here? We made it as if the wrong never happened. <laughs> oh, or, or we put you in the position you would have been had <laughs> oh, this person not sexually assaulted you. It's like you can't even get that sentence out of your mouth. So it's bizarre that in law schools, people talk as if that's what the damages do. Or in the criminal context, like if the punishment might help with that. Whatever, whatever the legal response is doing, it's not that. Right. People's lives have changed and they've been scrambled in all kinds of ways. And we're not we're not putting it back the way it was. Yeah, totally. Go ahead, Scott. Oh, I, I was just I, I I just I thought maybe we should go to the oh, go to questions. Uh, yeah, go to questions because there was a. Uh, uh, I was a, just a, like lot, I was enjoying the lot, conversation. So no, much no, no lots of them. But, it, but but this is actually one of the great things about uh talking about things that Scott Hershowitz talks about is that people find them interesting um, as opposed to uh, what I do. Um, so about- <laughs> now, I also you do some of what you do. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but, you do, but you do what I do, but in an interesting way. So, um, but, but uh, I would love to, I'd love to go to, to, to the audience. Yeah. Well, while we wait for the inevitable low, like long wait for Mateo to, um, uh, even though he was by far, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, wait, oh, wait. Oh, wait. Here he is. I, I, Hi, Mateo. Okay. We're I, just I, to me. Oh, really? My feed cut out like a minute ago. You were, oh, I just said, I was saying we're, we're going to wait for Mateo for like another three hours or something. Okay. So I was making oh. fun of you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mateo is our, is our, um, is our uh, resident what how old are you 14 uh recently uh, 21 great <laughs> off just by a factor of seven um yeah. but it was uh no mateo is uh is incredibly amazing precocious and like kind of brilliant uh one of the we people were- who joins us regularly and he's at yale so he bumps into scott on a regular basis yeah i just thought we actually saw each other no, on Friday we saw yeah, we were Friday. at that, we were at the same conference. Mm-hmm. So. Very cool, yeah. uh, Mateo. Go for it. Thanks. Uh, my question is about forgiveness and its relationship to third parties, uh, and I'm wondering how feelings of the person who's the directly aggrieved party uh, should affect whether third parties forgive the perpetrator, uh, and if it even makes sense at all to speak about someone who wasn't the directly aggrieved. And forgiving someone for a wrong that they did. Yeah, so forgiveness, I think, is one of these really interesting uh, phenomena where you need you need standing to forgive, 
right? So I can't just go stand out on the street corner, you know, looking for people that have done something wrong and, and like walk up to them and forgive them. Uh, if I had no involvement or, or no stake in the situation and, you know, like it'd be weird, weirdly presumptuous, like who are, who are you to, because you, when you forgive someone, you're implying that they did something wrong. You're implying mm -hmm. that you held some, host, you had some hostile reaction, right, to what they did. Um, so, I, so I do think that you need standing uh, in order to forgive, but I'm not sure that standing is held so narrowly by the person who is wrong. So I think if somebody say wrongs one of my kids, then I've got both the standing to resent them um, and also maybe the standing to forgive them. I don't think that I can offer complete forgiveness, which is to say, I think my forgiving them, my willingness to repair my relationship with them doesn't preclude, say, my kid still feeling angry or resentful about that. You know, it's like it, your question, like it's the way you started was like, should you take your cues from the person who yeah. was wronged? And I think probably yes, unless that person's behaving badly, right? I think that sometimes you, you may never owe someone forgiveness, but you you can be acting badly in, in refusing it if they've earned it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it may be that uh, you, you should hang back in the first instance and let the victim of the wrong be the judge of whether forgiveness has been earned. But if they're making a moral mistake, then you might have a really constructive role to play mm -hmm. by extending forgiveness yourself. So, okay. so when does it become too attenuated, though? So, for instance, um, and it's, it's really interesting because in, in like parole work, especially if it's a murder case, right? I mean, no matter what case it is, the prosecutor finds their victim. So if it's a murder case and the actual victim isn't there, but even if it's a robbery and the actual victim is there, the prosecutor's gonna find that victim. So they'll find the person who is most willing to express discontent and hurt and harm from the stand. But at what point does that become too attenuated, particularly if it was a murder and 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 then it's like, okay, is it a sibling, does that count? If a sibling counts, and I've, I've been involved with cases where um, they reached out to people who were cousins to ask them to speak on whether or not somebody should be released on parole. So at what right. point does that third party become actually a bystander that has no right to assert it? And Scott has said shit on Twitter that has deeply offended me. <laughs> does it even count? I know it, it is true. I, I would like to extend, I mean, thank you for bringing that up, Dwayne, because it's very important. I extend an apology to all FedSoc members. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you i mean it, 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 as you as as your work shows scott hershevitz that like you you can only be forgiven when you do something with a, a full heart um and I just want to know that <laughs> i'm doing it with a full heart yeah oh quick 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 very just like i, I don't want to cut off, cut this off but i also want to ask about will smith Oh yeah. yeah, we didn't get into that. Yeah, Sorry, Mateo. Well, that is yep. the ultimate attenuated question right there, because like the whole country is aggrieved or not aggrieved, and all of it is based on a prox. In fact, the people who are directly involved haven't spoken. You know, right, right. Just apologized, but Jada hasn't said anything. She had. Yeah. I don't even know. If she she was just agreed. like leveled this look at him and was like, he was laughing it up, and then she was like. <laughs> I think that's what this is about. Is he had the wrong first reaction? Oh, and, and oh. then she looked at him, and and, and then he, he had to corrected. 
a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so look, so like the philosophical literature draws this distinction between resentment and indignation, right? Where the thought is resentment requires some personal stake in the situation. Most commonly you're the victim, but maybe you're also somebody who um, represents the victim in some way, like a parent or whose well-being is bound up with the victim in some way, like a spouse, um, so that you stand to be like specially harmed by what's happened. Um, the rest of us, I think we can be indignant about what Mills, Will Smith did. It'd be weird for us to resent it. Um, That's so interesting because one of the questions, and this is why it becomes the, the sort of substance of literature, right? Because the question is like, as a, as a, as a spouse or a partner, um, when do you have the right to actually resent something or to just be indignant? And, and, and when like you are positioned morally, probably has so much to do with the, the internal aspects of your relationship, but the public doesn't, isn't really aware. That's so, that's so true. Yeah. And, yeah. Like, and that like that, like knowing that you and your tribe are going to resent or like be indignant of a person allows you, gives you the power to publicly forgive them or to stop giving a shit because you're just like, you know what? I don't need to punish you. All my people are going to punish you forever. <laughs> like that's kind of like I mean like I really I you know like there's there right like yeah yeah you know someone that, uh, comes at Dwayne and I will be like Dwayne can forgive them I will never forgive them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. no seriously well I I think we play important roles for each other like that and you know if if you're worried that Dwayne is a little bit too quick to be forgiving. That, and if you're somebody who's related to him in the right way, that you can be a little protective of him by not being as quick to forgive right. on his behalf as he is. Um, you know, on the spousal question, actually, I just want to give an advertisement for another philosopher. A philosopher is going to be my colleague in the fall. Uh, Steve Schaus has this really interesting paper about loss of consortium claims in tort law. And th they used to have a rationale. Right. Wait, so it used to be explain, explain what yeah. loss of consortium. Okay, so so if if um if Scott's in a car accident and he's you know injured oh, in a way, me. say yeah. that yeah, so so he he's injured in a way maybe that makes it difficult for him to do his job, and now he's not teaching at Yale and he's not bringing in income and he's not also he's also not helping around the house. He's not cooking the, the meals he would normally cook or doing the laundry he would normally do. Um, Scott's wife, Allison, can bring a claim, right? Alongside Scott's claim. Scott has a claim for his lost wages. Allison has a claim for loss of consortium. She can say, hey, Scott used to do these things around our house. He can't do them anymore. That's hurting me. She can also say, um, Scott and I used to go do these things together. We like to hike. We like to dance. We can't do those things any longer. And all of this used to have, all this used to have a rationale, right? It used to be, that um, that these were claims that husbands brought for injuries to their wives because the law's view was that the wife was the husband's property. And so it was a kind of proprietary claim. You damaged my, my thing and it's not as useful as it was and I want compensation for that. Well, we abandoned that view of the spousal relationship but the loss of consortium claims in America have hung on. In lots of the common law world, they just got rid of them, right? Here they've hung on. And so S Steve Schaus asks, um, is, there, is there a rationale for them? And, and the answer he gives is 
we should understand spouses to have a kind of uh, joint agency, that their lives are intertwined so that it's not that each person has the things they do. They do things um, they do things as a we, right? And the injury is like is to the group. And so it's not that Allison, if Scott's paralyzed, Allison can't dance. She can dance. There's lots of other people on her own. There's lots of other people in the world she can dance with. The claim is we can't dance together, right? Oh, and so when I think about- Thompson, Clarence Thompson rule. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it brings us to Clarence Thompson. They definitely have a problem. Wait, Clarence, <laughs> they, they, Clarence they, Thomas. They, yeah, and Ginny Thomas. Yeah, they're like yeah. insanely- Okay, sorry. Um, they, 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 are, are, they are a we who are, who are doing some things that are inconsistent with his role. Yeah. Oh, that's actually a really interesting way of framing it, Dwayne. I know. It's interesting, though, because they said that, though. He, he once said that she was like, that they were like tied together at the hip. But he said it in a positive aspect, talking about the way that she allowed him to be the person that he is and how like she supported him in just the sort of general sense of it. But then when it comes to this negative thing, it's like, nah, they're two different people. So as you know, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. Right, but except that, right. So so people, when it comes to criminal justice system, even though you're a different person, tough. But when it comes to recusal, no, no yeah. we're, we're, we really are two different people. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, again. No, no, go ahead, Scott. Well, just because I, I just don't want to hurt Dwayne anymore by saying bad things about the legal conservative movement. So I'll just leave it there. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So like, so Scott Hershevitz, why are you not, you should rewrite like your op-ed like about, 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 Will about Will Smith. Like, what have you thought about doing that? You know, have there been any op-eds about it? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I haven't been. I don't know. Like I, I I um I think that people are showing a lot of restraint, actually. Um, no, no, it's been yeah. several no. op-eds. But but you know what's interesting? Paula should ask her question. Actually, I I have an interest to take on what your op-ed should be about. But um, Paula is like she muted herself because she doesn't want to hear us. <laughs> no, well, I muted Paula because I know that she's just like bah, 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 bah. <laughs> I, I mean, everyone's like, oh, Paula, 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 Paula. But she has her whole. She has all. She has her own law school. You know, yeah. it's, she's They've like named Paula, it after her. You're at Paula's law school, so I whatever. Okay, I I teach at Paula's law school. In fact, right, this will not be the first time that Paula has asked me a question. <laughs> Paula's like completely feel really bad. Okay. You don't even have him as a professor anymore. Um, mm. so I kind of have like two questions. And the first one is, as you talked about the symbolism of the litigation that she had, even though I think the damages were only a dollar. And I remember from our first case, which we read was Alcorn v. Mitchell. And we talked about the symbolism of litigation and what that means. And I was wondering what you think about that. And also, you guys talked about the criminal justice system. When we talk about theories of punishment, what the goal of punishment is. And we talked about what you do when a victim wants more than what the system is supposed to offer in punishment. And I remember thinking like the goal isn't to completely satisfy the victim's needs, no matter what the cost, if you're thinking that that goes beyond what the criminal justice system requires, right? So if your victim wants more time than what this person's getting sentenced, I don't, that doesn't, we don't do that in the criminal justice system. And I just want to know 
what those two things from torts and crim law kind of how they interact. Yeah. So the the first bit, Taylor Swift gave me a huge gift with that loss. That loss. Phenomenal damages. I must mention it like every time I teach nominal damages in property. So yeah, it's great. Yeah. So let's just review what happened there. She was um, like doing some kind of publicity appearance and a radio DJ grabbed her butt while they were posing for a picture. And she didn't, she didn't do anything about it in the moment or even like immediately after she just spoke up about it publicly, said it had happened. And then he sued her for defamation saying it didn't happen. And then she's like, well, if you're, <coughs> if you're suing for me, you're suing me, I'm suing you. Right. Cause that was battery. And she asked the court for just, a, just nominal damages, which are a, a dollar, right. Just to, to establish this happened. The law says if there's a wrong, you're going to get some damage award. It at least has to be a dollar. And when I say she gave me a gift is because I've spent years trying to get students to see that these lawsuits, tort suits, are not just about the money, right? Mm. A lot of people need the money, right? They, they, they had to stop working or they had big medical bills. So for them, the lawsuit's in part about the money, but there's always something else going on Right. And I think actually the something else matters more to people often than the money. It's that I want somebody to like to stand up and say, yeah, you can't treat me that way. That was wrong. Don't don't do that. Right. And so she really helped me out because she has a lot of money. She didn't need any more money. So she could come into court with the purity of saying, I just want a dollar for the wrong and and make clear that there's really something else that matters here, which is like my body's not your property. You can't just grab my ass whenever you want to. So um, and as I say in the paper, it, I think these sort of collective practices of disassociating the community from the message that the wrongdoing sends, making clear that the community doesn't re regard Taylor Swift's body as available for anybody who wants to grab it. That's kind of a substitute for the victim taking that, for, sorry, for the wrongdoer, taking that responsibility on themselves and apologizing and acknowledging the wrongdoing. So that's one reason I think institutions like tort law are really important and have a constructive role to play. But the second question about um, like the roles, uh, the role of victims in the criminal justice process, I've got a more complicated view, I think, than people, than the sort of standard view you get in a lot of law schools, right? A standard story is, that tort law is about the relationship between the victim and the, the wrongdoer and criminal law is about the relationship between the wrongdoer and the state. And I think things actually can't be sorted that cleanly because if, the, if there was a victim for the crime, then the prosecution is inevitably going to say something about that victim, right? So think about like people are upset by the Brock Turner um, sentence. He's the, the, the Stanford guy who uh, sexually assaulted Chanel Miller and was uh, uh, eligible, I think, for a 10-year sentence and was sentenced to six months in prison. And a lot of people thought, well, that wasn't long enough. And one reason people felt that way is because they thought it suggests that what happened to her is kind of trivial. So I think like victims are, are sort of bound up in the messages that any criminal prosecution is is going to send, but that doesn't mean that they should have control over what those messages are. I think it's just something that we have to attend to. You've got, you've got to respond to what Brock Turner did in a way that signals that this is really um, like an egregious violation of Chanel Miller. Um, and, you know, it was, yeah. 
it's it's a cat named Christopher Belter who um who had mm. sex with two women without their permission and he was sentenced to probation and what was really interesting is um there was people on the internet saying again some white kid commits this um heinous crime and he doesn't get any prison time and one of these women was an ex-girlfriend and another one of the women he knew and they pushed for him not to get jail time and in fact his sentence was so lax that if he fulfills his probation terms um he will only be on be on a sex offender registry for like six months right and it'll essentially get wiped away and one of the interesting questions is with tort law i'm in full control of how i communicate the wrong that has been done so taylor swift gets to say i just want a dollar and she gets to communicate to the world what the purpose of this is uh, with criminal law even in this case i'm talking about the public reads the article and the victims no longer matter you know the public reads the article and they say this is another example of white male privilege and, and so i think one of the complicated things about criminal law is that um it, 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 it's just like the the harm that happens to the public and the harm that happens to the individual is so hard to suss out but one of the beautiful things i think that happens in criminal law that we don't think about enough is frequently you plead guilty to something right so i had a client once to play guilty to um attempted uh attempted um conspiracy to commit robbery right um during the during the during the um, plea bargain um during the, the final hearing when he's accepting the plea bargain he pled guilty to that for um time served they read the police report so they read the statement of the facts that's in the police report well the statement of the facts in the police report is like on such and such a day such and such um pulled out a pistol and took such and such as money and you're like what the fuck? that does not sound like conspiracy to commit robbery <laughs> that sounds like robbery robbery <laughs> and and the interesting thing is like whenever you have something that comes out in a plea bargain that doesn't map not whenever but frequently if it doesn't map onto the charging documents it might be because the charging documents don't describe what actually happened it might be because they overstate the case or it might be because what actually happened no longer mattered because in the conversations between the defense and the prosecutor and the victims that they came to a different kind of agreement and so i think that the criminal law is so muddy that it's one harder to even attest that the public is aware of what gets communicated because i'm surprised that nobody has written about how you know what you plead guilty to radically does Delta. not match the description of the crime yeah like that seems like such a like a, a really significant place to theorize about punishment um yeah but anyway so i just think it's i just think it's wild yeah you know actually my colleague gabe menlo has has been has written a little bit about that there's sort of like the difficulty of understanding what the communicative message of a criminal conviction is given um all the parts of the process that are opaque right opaque um to the public sometimes opaque to the to the jury i do think just on the first point you're making Dwayne. You're you're absolutely right to draw this distinction in tort law. It's like foundational that the victim is in complete control. Nobody else can file that lawsuit. Nobody else can settle that lawsuit. And in criminal law, um, it's not that way. The prosecutor is more or less uh, in control and sometimes has a practice of listening to victims and sometimes don't have the practice of listening to victims. I do think there's a kind of reason to have this institution where somebody else is in control other than the victim. And it's precisely for this problem we're talking about earlier. Sometimes victims may undervalue themselves, right? That's something you see on like domestic violence. 
And sometimes there's more people who have a stake in um, in the outcome than just the victim. So with the case you're describing, the two victims are in a forgiving mood, but that sentence is going to say something about women generally and the significance of sexual assault. And so having a kind of public representative um, uh, involved in the decision as to what the consequences should be strikes me as significant or important. Um, but of course, we almost always overdo it. Um, Cassie, so what, one of the things that um, I really love about your work, Scott, is the idea, and it comes through for the last hour you've been talking about, especially in your last comments, which is the, the kind of the symbolic moral role that, you know, appearing in court, litigation, um, contesting claims matter. Um, and so you have this great article about Harry Potter, you know, like imagine like, you, you know, you, you, you suffer some loss and like you could just go to like Harry Potter and like he'll just uh, wave his wand and monies will change, you know, bank accounts like to the person who really did it and everything will get to the point where as if it never happened, you know, in a, and so the, the, the point that you make there, and I'm sorry if I butcher it, is the, the idea that actually something very important would be lost, the idea that you as the victim who have been wronged have the right to um, make a claim and have that claim um, publicly evaluated. And, and I think that that's incredibly important in, 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 in our ability to understand what is happening in these, in the courtroom. Um, but I, I also, um, it's really, I, I know this may sound like it's coming completely from left field, but like, like, how does that, you know, like when people talk about AI and the use of AI in law, like they're just not thinking that like the tool is really mismatched with the problem that the legal process is trying to solve, which is not like, how do we, who did it and how does the money get around, but rather what message do, do these actions um, take? And I just wanna say like, that's a kind of hallmark. I mean, so much of your work kind of kind of drawing out the moral and uh, stakes of legal process. I want to just make a pitch for Scott. Scott has this unbelievable book um, that's um, pubbing in about like what, like three weeks, four weeks? Um, May third. Yeah, like four weeks. Yeah, May third. Okay. Cool. Yeah, we yeah. just we just put it in. The, we've been putting it in the channel okay, day, but okay. like you'll be back on to talk about it. I hope. Yeah, um, it's a, when it's you can. A, it's a fantastic book. It's what the thing is, is that not only is it funny and it, it can, it has dual uses, um, but it's also really good philosophy. Like yeah. it's really, really good philosophy. It's really interesting. And you will, even if you're a professional philosopher who like reads this stuff all the time, you will learn a tremendous amount from it. So anyway, Should I just, I just describe the book. Should I tell people yeah, what yeah, it is? Yeah. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Go ahead. Just please. Yeah. So the book is called nasty, brutish and short adventures in philosophy with my kids. And, uh, it's, 
it's sort of what it sounds like, which it's about adventures in philosophy with my kids. And shortly after I had kids, I realized I was talking about them all the time when I was teaching. So for having a conversation about punishment in class, I described something that one of my kids did and then asked my students how they think I should respond. And then we'd use that as a kind of springboard to thinking what are the purposes of punishment before we transition into talking about whatever academic philosophy we'd read. And I discovered with my students, that was like a much easier way to get people engaged in a conversation and to see the stakes and to start to form views of their own. And eventually I started to do this in conversations with my colleagues too. And then at some point I thought, well, maybe um, like this is something to do uh, for a broad audience to take these like uh, funny stories about my kids that raise questions in philosophy and then explore them with the kids and with the help of some professional philosophers. And the second component of the book is it's not just an introduction to philosophy. It turns out kids are really phenomenal philosophers. They just have, um, they ask really deep questions because they're trying to make sense of the world and they have really significant insights into the world. And so like the second like aspect of the book is it's a plea to take kids uh, as the serious thinkers that they, that they are. That's they great. have so few of priors, you know. They, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Just, it's like I don't. Have, they don't have a, a, a team that they're committed to, and and it's so obvious when they do that you, they have to confront that bias, you know. But I found most interesting about this conversation is that we ended up talking about stuff that like, like really, really matters. That even went to the heart of, like, we couldn't spend an hour talking about what was dominating the news because it just, it just, it 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 just, you know, the answers were too obvious. To spend more than three minutes talking about it. It was just like, you know, right. yeah. Russia, Russia is bad in invading Ukraine. <laughs> Next, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. But no, I like. But no, I think this is great. And as the only one who doesn't have kids here, I will say that like I was just on the phone with one of my friends who has kids who are now hitting like seven and nine and ten, and are like, she's like, yeah. You start getting asked the questions like. Do we see the same blue? And like, wait, is your wait. blue my blue? Do you and know like, the color purple? Like... No, the color purple does not exist. Yeah, I know. Oh, well, this is going to get deep fast. Yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm regretting it. It's a figment of our imagination. I can't remember who told me this, but it has haunted me for the past two months. It, it actually doesn't exist. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know whether. Like... Wait, I am hunted already. I don't know whether purple exists, but that question of like, do you see blue the same way I see blue? That appears in the introduction to my book because it was the very first philosophical question I ever asked my parents. I was five and it just occurred to me that maybe my mother didn't see red the way I see it. And then it turns out that actually lots of kids have this question when they're little. And I think it's actually like they're, they're, they're trying to learn to read other people's minds to, to figure out what other people are thinking. And then they realize there's this limit to how far they can go. Yeah, right. Like, I can't get the picture of what the world looks like to you. And so, um, yeah, there's a chapter about consciousness in this book that, you know, like kids are on to this problem. And then most adults just completely forget that it exists. Right, right. That's right. I, 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 I remember my first question to my, my mom, actually. It was, um, can morality be a condition of legality, even if there's a social convention? Um, to take it as such, which, yeah. so, I mean, I totally get that. Um, so you know what was, Obama would say about that is that you're a jackass. 
Your mom is like way too nice to tell you that. Though. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> anyway, thank you, everyone. Oh wait, wait. Um, this is amazing. Yeah. Right. Wait. What? What? But there's. A, oh, do Richard... I have to do the thing? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, we're gonna be back many hours from now, Wednesday at 5 p.m. Uh, it'll be Genevieve and Ben, who is still <laughs> recovering from COVID. Uh, so be really nice to him because he's like still coughing and I'm worried about him. Um, and uh, that will be many hours. Scott, this was amazing. Please come back whenever you want, but hopefully in three weeks when your book is out, uh, that would be wonderful. And um, we're not allowed to have fun anymore, but so Scott? We, we, first of all, we, 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 we can have Scott Hershowitz, but also, Dwayne, that's just so great that you're like, we get you. Um, yeah. So I just want to say We're going to be announcing new co-host official stuff soon, but like, uh, yes, it is. It thank is, you, it thank is, you for joining us. It's really awesome. It was my pleasure. This was fun, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dwayne, what were we going to say? I already pre-ordered the book. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. I did too. That's the best endorsement like ever. <laughs> <laughs>